G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. One of the virtues of our Australian political history might appear to be that we've been able to keep from falling into extremes. Now, there's been a tension between the left and the right. We inherited a legal system founded on the rule of law and a Christian foundation that's given to us in Australia peace and prosperity as a nation. But we may be able to identify in this time some rise of some extremist elements in Australia, some extremes that we might see as dangerous. And it could include issues around things like immigration policies, a more radical socialism versus an unrestrained style of capitalism. Some groups may be encouraging a form of nationalism versus the idea of perhaps another extreme, a more extreme multiculturalism. And, of course, lifting our sights around the world, globalization versus anti-globalization. Well, some of these issues may point to an authoritarianism rising and perhaps on both sides of the divide. Well, you can imagine this is an important conversation today, and I want to invite you to join into the conversation very shortly as we lay a bit of a foundation. We'll open the talkback lines, and you'll be able to contribute. Our very special guest through this hour and helping us to negotiate some of this way is Peter Curty. Peter is a Senior Research Fellow in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. He's also Adjunct Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. He's an Adjunct Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. He's also the author of a number of books. Those most notable, The Tyranny of Tolerance, Threats to Religious Liberty in Australia, and Euthanasia, Putting the Culture to Death. Peter is a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, and he's also an ordained minister in the Anglican Church of Australia. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Peter Curdy. Thanks, Neil. Great to be with you again. Peter, we are diving into some deep waters in a conversation like this today, and I suspect that there'd be listeners to our conversation that might never have even considered that there could be extremes rising in Australia. What is so dangerous about the idea that there might be extremes, whether it be on the left or on the right side of politics? I think the key idea about the voices that do come up on the extreme is that actually they don't represent the mainstream. Now, the way the media often responds to those voices on the extreme, you'd think that everybody thinks like that or that it poses a threat to the way everybody thinks. But in fact, for the most part, as you said in your introduction, Australia is a very uh, stable country um, and we, you know, governments 
uh, elections move between uh, center left and center right, but there is a there is a, a, a compact that really binds the nation and has given us so much social, political, and cultural stability over many years. Now, the voices on the extreme, and we can come later, I expect we will, to look at what those voices might be and what the issues that, that, uh, that arouse those voices might be. Uh, the, those, those views are not of the mainstream. And I think it's very important to remember that they are not the mainstream and they do not represent the views of what we might call ordinary Australians going about their lives, raising their kids, paying the mortgage and so on and so forth. Uh, Is it a a common sense thing to assume that the mainstream might be the unmovable centre, but there might be extremes that are developing, whether it's the left or the right? But what happens, Peter, if the mainstream appears to be drifting one way or another. Is this the way that real extremism presents real danger? Those societies in history where we've seen a real move to one extreme or the other, we might think of Nazi Germany or we might think of, uh, of communist Russia in the early years of the 20th century, um, were responding to really deeply entrenched social issues in when Hitler came to power in the early 1930s. Uh, it was after the devastating effects of the Second World War and a terrible economic situation that prevailed through the 1920s. And the, the people of Germany, uh, because it's important to remember that Hitler was elected democratically to office, the people of Germany responded to a, to, to a dire political situation. Similarly, in Soviet Russia, when, when the communists seized, uh, seized control over, uh, over a, a series of revolutionary acts, it was in response to a, a, a gravely deteriorating social situation at home. Now, in this country, we don't, thank goodness, we don't face anything like that at all. Uh, and so we, when we sense that, that, that Australians as a whole are moving one way or the other, they're not moving to the extremes. They might be moving one or two points uh, from, as it, as it were, the centre line, to use that image, but they're not going to lurch to the extreme because we don't have... Uh, and it's one of the real blessings of our country that we don't face the sorts of social, pressing social issues, uh, you know, runaway inflation, uh, you know, catastrophic effects of war, uh, and all those sorts of factors that can destabilize countries. We don't face any of those. And so I don't think that the, that the Australians as a whole are, are ever likely to lurch uh, to one extreme or the other. Well, interesting, as you say, revolution is typically the response to extremism. And so if you do have uh, one side of an extreme or the other that seems to take on an authoritarian power, the only response to that is some form of revolution. That usually means violence. So uh, so if we were to uh, sort of set a scene as to where we are right now, I guess uh, we're not trying to raise fears today, but to have a conversation about these things. Uh, Australia's not, in your opinion, at a risk of actually moving to one extreme or another? I don't believe it is at such a risk, no. Good. Uh, let's talk about how tensions draw mainstream political parties into dangerous ground. And uh, here we might think of uh, those mainstream parties as one of the, the two that will take power. Of course, you've got the coalition, the uh, the incumbent government, uh, and then you've got uh, the Labor Party, perhaps as the other side there, and uh, as mainstream parties. Some people might say 
that uh, you know depending on the the side of the divide you prefer uh, some people might say each of these is actually being drawn to further extreme what are your thoughts here peter well i think taking the left side of politics to start with um we do see the the growth of the greens uh, the australian greens as a as a political force in australia and there are many people on many voters on the center left who are attracted to some greens policies particularly around uh, the environment uh, particularly around energy and issues of climate change now those those issues will draw the Labour Party, I think, to the left, will draw them towards the Greens because they will need to tap into the support that the Greens has at risk of losing support, the Labour Party, at risk of losing support itself. So we may see, uh, and I think we do see in a fairly consistent way, uh, people, the, 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 uh, people tacking, as it were, to the left in order to address very, very specific issues of, of energy and climate change. Uh, you know, Adani is one in, in the state of Queensland, your, your neck of the woods, where uh, Adani is a particularly uh, volatile issue at the moment. And so the, a Labour Party campaigning for in, in an election to win office will need to take into account those who have a particular view uh, about you know environment, about energy, about say Adani, in order not to have that support hemorrhage. The right hand side of politics, we've got issues of of nationalism and national identity. Often those do come to uh, be focused on issues of border protection um, and the, the nature of immigration and whether and and the degree to extent to which the the sorry the extent to which um, immigration is is regular and regulated. Now, when those concerns are flashed up on the right, um, a, 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 a conservative, main conservative parties like the, uh, the, the Liberals and the Nationals have to be mindful of that. And I think they, it, it requires great political skill to, as it were, vacuum up those votes and vacuum up those concerns without the whole party lurching to, to that extreme. So we have, what I'm really saying is we have fringe views. Uh, I'm not saying that they are minority views, but they are views on the fringe because they are about very specific issues. But they can start to really inform the, the way in which support for the main parties changes. And so parties have to address that. John Howard did that with the rise of One Nation in the late 1990s. He got a lot of criticism for it, but I thought he exercised considerable political skill in actually tapping the anxieties or, or alleviating the anxieties of those who were drawn to uh, One Nation when it first emerged on, on the Australian political scene. Peter, what are your thoughts about the propaganda? I mean, here we are. We're just a week and a half out from the federal election. Uh, we are being bombarded with advertising on all sides of politics. Uh, sometimes the sorts of advertising we're seeing is being authorised by groups that some will say are on the extremes and they're pushing their own propaganda. What are your thoughts for the way that we're exposed to a lot of these ideas, and some of them are actually more on the extreme side? Well, in an election campaign, we're always going to see lots of material being promoted on social media or uh, on radio and television, or even just in terms of leaflets and hoardings that we see. Uh, Get Up, for example, has got big hoardings here in Sydney on some key buildings. 
And that just seems to me to be a part of what goes on in in an election campaign. One of the great strengths, I think, of Australian democracy is that we have a compulsory voting system. And that means that issues of turnout, voter turnout, do not arise here. People turn out to the polls. They have to go. Uh, It's the law. And that means that most Australian voters are already pretty politically engaged. They already know uh, what they, how they're going to cast their vote, and we see that in pre-polling. People are, vo- are voting already before the campaigns are even concluded. In fact, the, Liberal, the Labour Party just launched its campaign on Sunday. There are already people who have voted. So, in a sense, I think the, 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 what you call propaganda is just, in a sense, part of what goes with, with electoral campaigning in a free and open democracy that we live in. Um, and the fact that people are politically, politically engaged because of compulsory voting means that they're not going to be really swayed by, um, in a, in a, I mean, people are informed by that sort of material, but I don't think that if you've got one view that's necessary and you, you encounter um, some election material or, or propaganda, as you call it, they're not going to be swayed by that necessarily. Of course, you've got the economic agenda and you've got a social agenda. And the social agenda isn't figuring as high in the election campaign as the economic agenda is. And yet I suppose for people who would hold to a Christian faith, those issues that are a part of the social agenda actually may be more important than some of those economic agenda items. What are your thoughts for the idea that a social agenda is really not being debated in this particular campaign? to ask you what you mean by social agenda. Well, social agenda, these sorts of social policies that uh, we might include, uh, say, uh, abortion in public hospitals being funded by a federal government or uh, the idea of a gender fluidity, uh, the whole rise of perhaps uh, the transgender, uh, the issues of freedom. Uh, these are Freedom is a social agenda issue rather than an economic agenda issue and uh, we'll get on to freedom uh, more determinately because it's one of those big things that are uh, is up for being lost in an election that's coming ahead. So social agenda type things that include these moral issues, uh, whereas a Christian believer, you might have a moral uh, compass that's shaped by your biblical appreciation of the value of human life. And uh, so when you've got issues like abortion, like euthanasia, these sorts of things become a part of the social agenda that doesn't really get a lot of discussion. Well, thanks. That's, that's really helpful, Neil, because I think on those issues, you're right. And we're not seeing those issues featuring uh, in, um, in, in the federal election campaign. And perhaps they are more likely to be issues that feature in a state campaign. I don't know. Um, but you're right. Those aren't there. But the reason I ask the question is because I think, in fact, the uh, debates about economic policy are, in fact, increasingly cast in terms of what I would call social agenda issues, namely fairness, compassion and equality. And both uh, particularly and, and I think the, the Labour Party is particularly adept at this. They are able to cast economic policies in what I would call moral terms. It's not just about 
making sure that the voter has more money in his or her pocket or that people are more or are able to be more prosperous or the business can succeed but that economic policy is promoted on moral grounds so policy is advanced because it is going to lead to greater equality because it leads to greater compassion because it leads to greater fairness and to that extent i think that economic policy does very much tap into into questions of society and and uh, and in a sense social justice and that's why i asked the question you're right i think on those issues but i do think the social agenda is actually has now been woven into the the, the economic agenda to, to a great extent interesting word that word equality because uh, where you've got one side that says and it can be quite confusing and i guess you've got to stop and slow down and try and reflect on these things but the idea of equality of opportunities which might be promoted on the right and uh, equality of outcomes that might be promoted on the left and the potential therefore uh, for those uh, to come to light and even uh, taken to extremes uh, this issue of equality it's it's a significant one and i know that the left side of politics likes to say equality because it does actually capture something of the imagination of this idea of aussies expectant of a fair go uh, but there's some issues there peter I think that's that's absolutely right, and I think that's yeah, a good summary, Neil. That that equality is a is a word that, in a way, it's a very rubbery word that can be used in all kinds of ways. But equality of outcome or means essentially some form of redistribution, which means taking from some to give to others. Whereas equality of opportunity means that you remove as many obstacles as you can that, that, that the sorts of obstacles that might inhibit somebody from getting a good education, from establishing a business, from flourishing in business, from being able to employ people or be able to take a job, all the sorts of things that lead to economic and I would argue along with economic social and cultural prosperity. So equality of opportunity uh, I think is actually very important. Equality of outcome means that some people are going to be checked. They're going to be, they're going to have something, usually money, taken from them by the government and given to others. And this, of course, feeds into the whole debate about welfare. I, I think that welfare is very important, and there are people who do need support, who do need financial help, and they do need um, a, a leg up, as it were, from society, from the state, from the government. But where, as we know, where concerns arise about welfare is where people start to take, um, who, who people end up receiving welfare payments or taking welfare payments when they could well be able to work, when they could well be able to afford to do other things, when they could well, if they, if they didn't have that, uh, that government money, would still be able to function well in society. We know that that's a concern about welfare. So, and that's something that does concern Australians because we don't like the idea of people cheating or rorting the system. I mean, those are important words. You know, rorting is is an important word in in the Australian vocabulary. So, I think that that equality, whether it's distribution or or outcome or equality of opportunity, is a very powerful political word. Uh, and parties on the left and on the right. Uh, make a great deal of how they interpret the word equality and how they want the electorate to think about equality. 
This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talk back line open 1-800-316-316. You might have a question. You might like to raise your own concern. Our special guest this hour is Peter Curdy. Uh, Peter is the, is a senior research fellow in the culture, prosperity and civil society program at the Center for Independent Studies, among many other hats that Peter wears. Uh, Peter, we're talking about dangers in extremes. Uh, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest concerns, I know that Christian leaders hold and whether it's being reflected throughout general society we would have to say perhaps people are not even concerned here but the threats that come to the Christian influence even in Christian schools and in universities and the ability of churches to be able to teach those things that are consistent with the biblical view these things do appear to be under threat right now an extreme we've not seen before. I think there is a real concern at the moment about religious freedom. And it's funny that a few years ago, when I first started doing um, work on religious freedom, it was an issue that didn't really capture the headlines. And a number of people would say to me, well, why why are you doing this work? Because it's not really an issue in Australia. Well, that, you know, eight years down the track, um, we're living in a very different uh, society, I think, where religious freedom it makes front is front page news and particularly so with with cases like um israel falau and the 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 kind of controversy that's been generated by by falau and his and his remarks on social media and the response to those remarks the question is are people really free to practice their faith in Australia. And I think Australians, uh, Christians in particular, I think are under pressure at the moment in a way that members of other religious traditions are not. Uh, and that could be for a whole number of reasons, but there does seem to be a pushback against, uh, against Christianity. Now, people will say, well, you, you know, you're free to believe, but I think religious belief is about more than simply what you have in your head. It's about how you practice it. And are you free to go about your daily life and manifest your faith? Are you free to order your family life, your community life, your schools in accordance with your, with your beliefs? And that is becoming, that's where it's becoming difficult. It's the manifestation. And we know that this, a lot of this was generated, a lot of these questions were generated during the marriage equality debate, and we had assurances from both sides of government, from political leaders at the time, that religious, the religious freedom of Australians would always be protected. And yet we are seeing those freedoms being encroached upon when a rugby player is not able to essentially paraphrase something from St. Paul, whether or not you know, you agree with Israel Falau. He was actually just taking material that you could you'd find in in the New Testament in in Paul's letters and recasting that in a more succinct form. Should he be vilified for that? Should he lose his job for that? Or the right of Christian schools to hire teachers who are, if not Christians themselves, certainly sympathetic to rather than antagonistic to the doctrines of the churches, and we're seeing those. Um, freedoms under threat as well. So I think Christians are are facing challenges that that they didn't face uh, ten or certainly twenty years ago, and I think that's that's a serious thing. I do have to say though, Neil, I think what I I mean it's the flip side of that. What I do see is a, a, 
and I sense this across the country really, is that Christians are becoming much more conscious of the need to articulate their faith, to stand up for what they believe, and to be more confident about declaring themselves to be Christians in the public square, rather than keeping it something that they, you know, they just do privately in their families or on Sundays or however. Uh, I, I do sense that Christians are, more, are becoming more confident about saying, well, actually, I'm a Christian and this is not a fair way to treat me. Interesting, and uh, there might be listeners who'd like to contribute to that idea because if we talk about tension, if one pulls one way, then we expect the other side to pull back the other way and if Christians feel as though they're under pressure, perhaps because Christians are not pulling hard enough in the opposite direction. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from John in Somerset in Tasmania. Hello, John. Welcome along. Uh, great to be able to talk to you, Neil and Peter. I think we may be thinking, uh, those who are serious about biblical Christianity, uh, in terms of driving a train right down the middle of the political spectrum. Uh, for example, in uh, biblical thought, we have, on the one hand, mercy and steadfast love, and on the other hand, uh, we have God as the judge of all the earth, and uh, we talk about truth as a serious and indeed an absolute uh, quality. A good thought there, John, because uh, even within our Christian faith, there are extremes, as you indicate, and uh, we've got to grapple with those and have a position and an understanding of those, then to be able to engage in what might be happening in a wider social debate. Uh, your thoughts for John, Peter? Thanks, John. I think that's a really important point, and I, I like the way you remind us straight away about about the Christian virtues of compassion and mercy. And whether or not a Christian is attracted to the to politics on the left or on the right, uh, I think it's very important that any Christian always conducts uh, him or herself with mercy and with compassion and treats others with mercy and compassion. And that what we want to do is foster those qualities of life in our society and that we'll, we, we must be clear that we stand for those in however we vote and whatever we do and wherever we live. And I think it's by being that sort of living witness to the truth that we can be effective evangelists for the gospel. Thank you so much to John from Somerset in Tasmania. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. We'll be taking some more calls after Vision National News, just 90 seconds or so out from the news. Let's come back to this uh, extreme idea for a few moments in the lead-up to the news, Peter. Uh, there does appear to be extreme elements trying to silence the Christian church right now. What are your thoughts on the silencing of the Christian voice? I think if Christians really care about this, then it's time to stand up and, and to speak up about it. And I do see that happening. I also see, in a very encouraging way, uh, commentators who are not themselves Christians, and are happy to say that they're not Christians, but who see that something is going wrong here. This is something that is, uh, that is un-Australian, that it is unreasonable, and it is unjust. And I think there is a sense in which um, uh, we are seeing a response to that, that innate fairness that characterizes Australian life. It's not fair to pick on somebody because of what they believe. They're, the people should be free to believe, should be free to practice. 
And even those who don't have religious belief themselves are standing up for that. And I think that's very important. Peter, as we continue our conversation, we'll take a call in just a few moments. But uh, but let's talk about uh, some of the groups that we might be able to say are centre and those that might be far left and those that might be far right. And maybe they're not even all on what you'd call, call extreme by historical uh, ways of describing them, but how do you sort of look at the spectrum as we have it at the moment and uh, and talk about those that we might be talking about as being perhaps a little more extreme than others? Well, one of the groups that I think causes me uh, a degree of concern is the Australian Greens, because largely because of their... Uh, determinedly anti-religious stand on so many issues that if they're, if they're a religious point of view is immediately discounted and often ridiculed. And I think that's a cause of great concern uh, to me. Um, and, and it, 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 it you know, support for the Greens nationally looks to be fairly consistent. It doesn't, it doesn't surge. It sometimes dips. We'll have to see what happens uh, on the 18th of May. But I feel that there is a, a, a radical secularism that I think is 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 harmful to that that dimension of religion of Australian life that is that is religious. Now we 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 don't live in a theocracy. We're not run by bishops and cardinals, thank goodness. Um, but religion does play a part in the life of, Australia, of, of many, many Australians. And I think the attempt by some on the, uh, on the left and some in some instances the extreme left to, uh, to, to stamp out any kind of religion or manifestation of, of religion is, is a cause for concern. That worries me. Of course, you've had the rise of the Greens, and as you say, this more radical extremism, it's drawn the Labour Party further to the left. Let's talk about the right side too. I have some balance here, because even as the right side of politics, and we're talking about the Liberal National Coalition, appearing to be drawn left as well, and then you have the rise of groups like, say, the Australian Conservatives, uh, you've got One Nation with Pauline Hanson, uh, even uh, Fraser Anning, uh, who gets perhaps more attention than uh, than uh, is deserving when it comes to the number of people who likely vote for him. But then you've got uh, issues like Clive Palmer also, uh, who was, uh, you know, buying his way into power in some sense. Uh, you've got these other uh, conservative groups on the other side trying to draw the centre back to the centre rather than to the left. What are your thoughts here on these groups? On the right, questions that uh, that sort of particularly activate people at the at the margins of the extremes are often around security, um, border protection, uh, immigration, and those are always, I think, difficult questions that need but that need to be addressed. But they're difficult questions in for Australia, which is a country of of immigrants. I mean, one in four, at least one in four. It could be uh, it could be fewer than that, but uh, until recently, one in four Australians was. Um, uh, was was born overseas, and so we are a country of migrants. And I think there are questions of the way in which people are able to come to this country, and when they come to this country, how they are able to join the community, to assimilate. Uh, but by which I mean not necessarily adopting the practices, but to adopt the ways of living in Australia, accepting our rule of law, our principles of democracy. 
how do the, how do people do that? How effectively are they able to do that? And I think when there is anxiety about uncontrolled migration or there is anxiety about insecure borders, it becomes easier for for parties on the on the right to whip up fears and anxieties that I think are generally unfounded. There's always a grain of truth in these things that yes, uh, there can be people who come to this country who actually end up doing great harm. But they are a very, very, very small minority. But it can be enough that that, that sort of grain of truth can be enough to generate uh, fear and anxiety, and that can be exploited. And that, I think, is unhelpful. And fortunately, we do have um, we, we do have these two major parties. We have well, the, the Liberals and the, and the Nationals as a coalition, and the Labour Party. And we know that government is going to pass from one to the other. Maybe a minority government. It may need support. Um, in in in, uh, in in Parliament, but we know, for example, despite his his advertising, we know that it's extremely unlikely that Clive Palmer will actually form a government and that he will be Prime Minister. But his voice is part of the Australian political landscape, um, and the way in which major parties deal with those voices, whether it's on the left or the right, I think is a mark of the of political skill as much as anything else. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Robin in Mount Morgan. Hi, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hi. Um, there's so many issues <coughs> to this, and um, I, I was interested to hear what you said, Peter, about um, Germany and Russia um, when they had those um, extreme, uh, yeah, extreme, uh, yeah, extreme elements um, because... Uh, in Germany, I know, because I've studied more about that, um, before the Nazis, the, mainly, I suppose mainly the Christians were really concerned about the communisms coming in, and so they fell into the danger of the other side, very, um, you know, to the right, and so a lot of them got caught out. Of course, Hitler wasn't good news after all. And I, I think that, yes, I know that Australia is different and we haven't got those... Um, dangers like in Russia and Germany before and the you know the unemployment high and all that sort of stuff but I still think that we're in danger um, and I worry about um, what the church is um, saying or at least what the public acknowledges is what the, the church is saying because very often it's um, a little bit too like I get sick of them too these phrases that everybody says you know about homosexuals blah 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 but, you know, that's, that's only one of the sinful natures that, you know, we're all prone to. There's, I think even Romans uh, mentions that God even allowed this spirit. It's, it's really a spirit. And um, as for, you mentioned um, Falau, Israel Falau, um, I'm not saying that homosexuality is good. It's not. It's very, very, very destructive. But even the person and even that, that gay footballer that is really angry with what Israel is saying, um, he has a point there because he's talking about these young boys that are killing themselves because of homophobia. Well, actually, I have my own views on that too. It's really not just what people are saying about them. It's what their own bodies are saying in their own heads. Robin, uh, making some, uh, some interesting points there. Uh, response from Peter. Thanks, Robin. I, I think the... People are going to have different views about a whole range of issues, such as homosexuality. And that, in a sense, is just part of what we have to accept, that people have different points of view and that no one view is necessarily going to prevail. The question is, 
is somebody like Israel Folau entitled to express his point of view publicly and openly uh, uh, without being without recrimination? I mean, as you have expressed your point of view publicly and openly on national radio, should you be free to do that? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, is everybody? Uh, can we expect everyone to agree with what I say or what you say? No, we can't. But we need to be free to express our points of view. And my concern about the, the limitations that we're seeing uh, placed upon many Christians at the moment is that if they, make a, a, if they express publicly a view about abortion or about homosexuality or about euthanasia, they will be shouted down and, and dismissed as being, uh, as being religious bigots and fanatics. <clears throat> that, I think, is, is wrong, and I think that's unjust. Robin from Mount Morgan, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Interesting to talk about the capacity that we have at the moment to express a view and be shouted down by an opposing side. What happens, Peter, if there is a policy, and as I understand it, this is a part of uh, perhaps the Labor Party policy, uh, to actually limit media conversations about controversial issues like this. That would appear to be an attack on freedom of speech, uh, but certainly when it comes to talking about controversial issues, uh, it is a way of shutting down the Christian view. What are your thoughts here? Well, I think that's true, <clears throat> and I think that um, that we don't want to see limits placed upon the media. I'm just going to clear my throat, excuse me. That's okay. <clears throat> we don't want to see <clears throat> unnecessary limits placed upon the media. I mean, there is already law uh, about what, what, what can say <clears throat> in terms of hate speech or inciting violence, and it's completely right that those things are against the law and one shouldn't do them. But when you try to extend and stretch the meaning of hate speech to include any view that a certain group of people don't think is acceptable, then that really does place limitations on our freedom of speech. And I, just coming back, I don't want to go on about the Israel Folau case, but it's, it just crystallizes so many issues at the moment. Because many people who have crit been critical of Folau have tried to cast this in terms of it not being about freedom of speech at all, but uh, being about uh, contract law, that he made a, he struck a, a, an employment contract with Rugby Australia and that that shouldn't have, uh, according to those the terms of that contract, he shouldn't be able to do this, that or the other. Now, that is subject to review at the moment in, in here in Sydney, so there's little that one can say. But it, it's an example of the way in which an issue of freedom of speech is cloaked as being about something else. It's not about contract law. It's can you, can you express your point of view publicly and without recrimination? <clears throat> and once the media starts to say, if there are restrictions placed in the media, what one can say or not say, what one can discuss or not discuss, we will have a greatly diminished civil society in my view. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Peter in, is it Closeburn in Queensland? Closeburn. Closeburn. Nice yeah, to hear well, from you, Peter. What are your thoughts? Okay. It's not exactly about Folau. I did go into bat on his side saying that, you know, I'm a devout atheist, but he's a right to his religious beliefs and he can speak them. But what I ring about is this. The Canberra politicians pay themselves 14.7 times minimum what people on Newstart get. That's before all the perks. Now, most people in this country uh, are ending up working to pay for rent and housing. 
curiously enough, about 170 years ago, the rent and the food and the housing was provided by the government. And I think the ratio of the pay was probably not, the split wasn't like it is now. Um, there are all sorts of people saying, oh, we must raise it 15%, etc., etc. I'm not on it, right? But uh, I'm a social anthropologist and an exploration geologist. But, but you know, this is bizarre. Uh, it's got to be doubled. Peter, you're talking about here what we might uh, we might identify as a gap between those who are wealthy and those who are uh, just uh, making ends meet. Uh, we want to, don't want to call them poor in Australia, but uh, there's this gap that does seem to be developing. Uh, this is a, a gap that does play into the hands of those who want to push some levels of extreme policy here. Peter Curdy, what are your thoughts for Peter? Well, I think this comes back to that earlier point, and thanks, Peter, for your question. I think this comes back to that earlier point that you raised, uh, Neil, about the difference between equality of outcome and the equality of opportunity. And it's always going to be true in, in, a, in a free economy that some people are more successful than others. And that, in a sense, just goes with having a, having a market economy where people are free to use their money, to use their talent, to sell their talent. Uh, and to purchase the things that they that they want or that they can afford, uh, there are always going to be people who who do better uh, than than others. I think, and I'm not an economist, so I, I I can't speak authoritatively about economic policy, but it I think that it's very important that what we have is a is an economy where restriction on opportunity is minimal and where people are given equal opportunity and afforded equal opportunity to make the very best of the of 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 the talents and the abilities that they have now in the event that people are are fall on hard times or that they are uh, they are in, in in need of assistance then i think it it's a mark of christian mercy and compassion words that we've already used in this program to make sure that people are looked after and, and that they are they are tended for i think welfare is a very important part of our society and there are people who who do need it now in terms of how much allowances should be raised i, I that is beyond my area of, um, of, of, of experience and expertise. But I think that we do need to be able to make sure that those who really do need financial assistance and financial support are, are able to have that. But I don't think, and this is one of the things that concerns me about some aspects of our election campaign at the moment, I don't think that those arguments should be cast in terms of what you might call the politics of envy. There are people who've got more, we'll take it from them and give it to people over here. Because that's a disincentive, I think. And that ultimately does harm to the economy and it does harm to the, the human spirit of motivation. Thank you so much to Peter in Queensland. We're taking calls and uh, time is running short, so let's be quick. Jonathan is in Perth in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome along. Yes, hello, Neil. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yes, you know, when we talk about freedom of speech and all these things, you know, let's be realistic. Everything, there's nothing new. Even talk about homophobia, all these things, make gay, they are old. As man was born, all these things started. My fear is if we allow government to make law or these things, then there's no, no freedom because you get the other people's power to overcome the other people. 
So this thing, I don't know why we're running after them. Jonathan, good thoughts in there, because what you're saying is any laws will impinge upon the freedoms we currently have. Your thoughts for Jonathan, Peter? Thanks, Jonathan. I think that's a very, you've made a very uh, profound point, actually, if I may say so, because you're right. Law can be used both as a shield to protect, but it can also be used as a sword with which to attack and what we have to do in, in any political system um, is make sure that the balance between, uh, between those two is maintained. We want law to be there to safeguard, to ensure that people are afforded maximum possible freedom, that they have their liberty, but that it's not turned into something that, that threatens or, or, or beats down or, or intimidates or limits uh, in unreasonable ways. How you strike the balance of that, I think, is, is, is very difficult, and it's a great political skill. And I think, on the whole, we've got that balance right in Australia. But it's always important to remember that a law that, could, that, is, that is said to be put in place to protect some can be used to attack others. And that's something we have to be very vigilant about. And it's a very good point, Jonathan. Thanks so much, Jonathan. In WA, let's hear from Ken in Adelaide in South Australia. Hello, Ken. Welcome. G'day. How are you going? Good. Ken, what are your thoughts? Um, I'd just like to know how is it that the political parties can slur each other and get away with it, and yet we have other religious um, people who actually put their views all over Facebook and we hear it on the news and media, and that's accepted... And here's another thought for you. We have, a, I have, if you're a candidate and you're actually uh, canvassing the area uh, as a candidate for a political party, you ha- uh, the people have the right to say what they want and what they don't want. So this has been issued, uh, not actually being pursued with the candidate here in South Australia regarding religious, uh, not religious, but freedom of speech. Uh, and that is actually written in the Constitution. Okay, Ken. Freedom of, freedom of speech, freedom, uh, and the government cannot intervene. Mm. You better uh, want to check it out. Constitution, section forty-four. Yep, uh, Peter. Your thoughts for Ken in Adelaide. Ken, many thanks for that. I, I think one of the great features of our parliamentary democracy is that at election time, you see uh, candidates uh, and and support cam- and party supporters exchanging points of view, frankly and candidly, in public. And I think that's a, it's great that people can peacefully exchange points of view and have quite substantial differences of opinion without resorting to violence or intervention by the army or things like that. I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, but you, you, you raise an interesting point. That, you know, politicians um, exchange ideas often with great, uh, with great vigor, um, and yet there do seem to be restrictions placed on, on others. However, I would say, just to put the other point of view, there are limits on what, are, on what politicians can say. And as we know, the, um, the, the, the senator uh, from South Australia, Sarah Hansen-Young, has currently got a case uh, before the courts arguing that the limits of, uh, of, of parliamentary debate, of political exchange, were exceeded in remarks that, were made to her by another senator. So the law will test that as well. Was, was that limit passed in that instance? Did that go beyond the exchange of political points of view? We'll have to see what the outcome of the case is. But when it's just exchanging points of view, I think it's, very, it's right and it's good and it's healthy that we have that vigorous exchange. I want to see 
that freedom afforded to all people in this country. No, it's wrong to incite violence. Rather, yes, it's wrong to incite violence. Yes, it's wrong to incite hatred. But if you have a point of view about about a, a social issue like abortion or euthanasia or homosexuality or same-sex marriage or whatever you know, whatever the issue, if you have a view, you should be free to express your point of view, and it shouldn't. You shouldn't be uh, face the threat of being uh, shut down for um, for a, a allegedly engaging in what is now often called hate speech. Thank you so much to Ken in Adelaide and almost out of time. Uh, Peter, coming back to our topic, uh, what's dangerous about extremes, far left, far right, uh, the sorts of ways that we're receiving the information that we receive, and it's uh, bigger than just watching the nightly news now. In fact, you've got 24-hour news channels, and some people will be critical of uh, the ABC, the national broadcaster, taxpayer-funded, and having more views that might be uh, friendly to the left rather than the right. Uh, these sorts of things, the way we're receiving this understanding, uh, whether it's social media or any other way, uh, these things are, are something that, uh, that impinges on all of us to take this level of responsibility about what we actually believe about what's true and what's not. What are your thoughts just in closing? I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's very important to get your news from a, from a, a range of different sources. People say that one of the problems in the United States, for example, is that people only get their news from particular channels. They get their news from Fox. If they're on the right, they get their news from MSNBC if they're on the left, and that's all they get. Now, we have a great mix of media sources uh, in this country, and I think it is important to see what papers on the left are saying about something and what papers on the right are saying about the same sorts of things, seeing how the, the election campaign is reported on by different news outlets, for example, is, is quite interesting. We have a responsibility to ensure that we are informed as citizens, um, and I think it's important to you know have those filters I like to think of it the skepticism filter in place. So you think, well, you know, that's one point of view, but there may be another point of view. Um, I think we have a great media, we have free media, and and it's a robust media. But we need to be mindful of the fact that there are particular points of view that are being presented. And we've got to make sure that we get a full range of those views. Well, Peter Curdy, it's been an absolute pleasure getting your insights and uh, helping us along the way on a journey on what is uh, a very controversial and difficult topic as we talk about uh, dangerous extremes, be they far left or far right. But uh, you certainly contribute to our understanding. As I point people to how they might be connected with you, the Centre for Independent Studies has a website, cis.org.au. I might say this is not a Christian organisation, but this is the group that you're connected with, Peter, and you're writing about issues to do with religion and freedom. And there may be some articles there that uh, our, our listeners might be able to access if they're looking to go a little deeper on some of these types of topics that you and I occasionally discuss. So cis. Dot org dot au. I'll also point people to a couple of books that Peter's written, one called The Tyranny of Tolerance, Threats to Religious Liberty in Australia, and another book called Euthanasia, Putting the Culture to Death. Any more in the pipeline, Peter, just before I let you go? Uh, maybe something towards the end of the year, but it's still in early stages. Okay. Neil, I'll let you know. Oh, great. <laughs> Peter Curdy, uh, Senior Research Fellow in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. Thanks for being with us once again today, Peter. Thank you so much, Neil. 
Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.